Cycling Toast Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. Where are we, Ronan? We're uh, on the Ponce de Belfi, right at the base of the super part of today's finish. Uh, the, the section where it kicks up to, what, 24% and turns to gravel. We've worked our way down from the finish line. Uh, and, yeah, we're just watching the riders pass now. Our car's on the other side of this barrier. <laughs> and uh, we're not being allowed to cross. So, yes, we're making a podcast in the meantime. <laughs> there, uh... Yeah, there's not a whole lot of room at the top of La Planche, and so riders getting handed a jacket, handed a bit of food and, and some water, and they're just flying right back down the mountain. And currently they're flying right back down the mountain, occasionally at some of their colleagues who are still riding up the mountain. Although maybe the Gruppetto has now passed. We just saw a Wout van, near Wout van Aert collision. What's that? I think it was Burgado. Budget, was, budget was Julian Alphilippe. He was suffering going downhill. <laughs> After the stage, he looked deeply uncomfortable. This is chaos. Like Casper Asgreen was just riding up there, and he, he nearly got wiped out by like, first of all, Burgadu, and then his teammate Florian Seneschal immediately afterwards. It's uh, now we've got the Gruppetto coming. Here they come, and I just hope that there isn't group, a rider arrives at the same time. We got Jakobsen, Mikael Björg, and Stakelangen and Hershey. A lot of UAE in that one as well. Those are the guys who would have just pulled the pin a fair ways ago. And did a job to set up... Bogaccia. Bogaccia, yeah. I remembered his name, I just... <laughs> is that where we are at the tour at this point? We're forgetting Tade Pogaccia? No, 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 I, I did remember his name. I was just trying to find a way of saying it that wouldn't... Tell everybody to switch off the podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> we might have had the same winner, but we've got a lot more to talk about. Well, it was an insane finish. We're gonna we're gonna dive into it in a lot more detail once we get off this mountain. I think that's that's where we are at the moment. All right, I think we need to try to go up and ask that dude if we can get across. Okay. Let's give it a shot. We'll be back in a bit. We are, well, we're now hanging out in our hotel in, does anyone have any idea where we are? We are in Jiro something. Shall I look where we are? <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where we are. We Germongi. are. Germany. Germany. <laughs> Jeez, we've cracked. I've cracked hard. We're cracked. We are, we're like a half hour from Planche de Belfi. We got the evacuation down the hill. We did manage to, to, to successfully get off the mountain in pretty quickly. Came down, wrote some stories, got some dinner, and now it is time to chat about today's stage. But before we do, before we do, Johnny, you had a, you had a pretty unique experience today, so I think we're going to start there. You hopped on... A motorbike for the stage. Tell me about it. it. As soon as it st I started on the motorbikes in the stage, it made me kind of regret that this is my third tour now and I hadn't done it yet. Cause it's such a cool experience, and you feel quite privileged. You're walking around after about half an hour. You you kind of get a bit tired of waving at everyone, and it kind of isn't isn't that novel anymore. Um, but it's an amazing way to see a bike race, and for someone like me who has never raced a bike personally and never watched, it really gives you a, a new appreciation and understanding of what you watch every day. Um, so yeah, I sort of recorded my thoughts along the way. I, I can't remember how coherent they were or what, I, or what exactly I said, but but it was real and it was in real time. Let's listen in. We're about 500 metres from the top of the Côte de la Grosse Saint-Pierre. There's conversations going on between the gendarmerie. We're about 500 metres from the summit of the Côte de saint grosse pierre I was wondering when the moto man, he was talking in French to the gendarmerie about setting off. He's looking behind him, I think waiting for the first ride in the breakaway uh, to pop around the corner and then we'll be, we'll be heading off back on our way. Radio tour blaring in our ears, letting us know what's going on in the race. The sun is out, the fans are lining the road. It is an amazing way to see a bike race, and not just any bike race, the Tour de France. We've been hitting, you know, 100 kilometers an hour on the bike. I'm having to really hold on for dear life. I used to lean with the motor driver on the corner. And we're going, I've just got a tap and we're going, so I need to hold on now. We descended down from the Col de la Grosse Pierre, which was a terrifying experience, to be completely honest. And now we're on the Col de Croix, 
about a kilometer from the summit. We're just making our way up through the team cars. It's amazing that on the descent we saw um, all of the commentators, you know, your your Belgian versions of Bradley Wiggins on a bike, your photographers, they all they all sit not really holding on like I am for dear life. They're sitting there flying down the descent, checking out the pictures they just took, not caring the world. We're now navigating some hairpins, so you've got to lean with the way the bike's turning, which is a bit tricky. Up ahead, just above a few team cars, you can see the back of the breakaway. Cyril Barth and Iman Olaviti taking big turns after getting dropped on the last climb to get back on. When the, when the breakaway passes, Leonard Kamner was leading. He's looking good today. The Bora Hansgrove boys are looking good. Fans are lining the climb. Everyone's out. Everyone's taking pictures on their smartphones, drinking. Sun's out. It's fantastic. We've just started the Super Project Belfi. There are fans already in the road with music, slowing everyone down, slowing the Bora Hansgrove cub down in front of us. We're trying to get past. Oh, we literally just hit a spectator. Because <laughs> we're just down the road. There's so many people on the road already. I've just been dropped off by the motorbike driver who I didn't really want to say it when I was driving with him but when he's not working at the Tour de France he's part of the riot squad in a suburb south of Paris so he is not someone to ever be messed with I'm 1.5 kilometers from the summit now I'm, just, I'm looking up at what hopefully is the finish line over the top of this hill there's people hiking up loads of vehicles all the mess of the tour so many fans if i make it to the top should see the finish to a fantastic bike race the riders only have six kilometers to go i'm walking up the course now just overtook the the mobster swanias and entered onto the the gravel bit which is more like sand than anything else very soft underfoot I don't know if it, the race will catch us up. If so, I have to hop over the barriers out of Jasper Philipson. But for now, I'm going to focus on walking against the gradient instead of talking. I haven't been on a moto in a couple years now. It might be time to, might be time to hop back on. You should do it. Yeah, it's been a while. It's pretty fun, and it's a pretty unique experience. And, and you're right in that it, it sort of, uh, it's a good reminder for us here at the Tour de France, uh, I think particularly for for old bags like myself who have been <laughs> at this for for whatever twelve years or something like that that I've been doing this for, uh, it's a good reminder of how lucky we are to be here and how cool this is and how I'm sure most of our our audience out there, most of the folks listening to this podcast would uh, would love to trade places with us for for a day or two and we don't forget that it it, it is. Yeah, we know how lucky we are and how cool this entire experience is. Let's get into today's stage, though. So the finish atop La Super Planche de Belfi. We actually, we all made our way up there in one way or another. Johnny was on the motorbike. We ended up heading all the way to the top in our car, which we weren't supposed to be able to do. In fact, we were trying not to. We were, we were trying to stop at a press room about 7k from the top so we could watch the race and, and get some wi-fi and the parking guys just sent us on our way and we ended up way at the top of the mountain so we just took advantage of it and we went all the way up it was a phenomenal day of racing once again breakaway went kind of as we were expecting johnny give me the give me the tour run the stage rundown the stage rundown you while well, you guys were at the summit i was stationed about 500 meters to go, I think, 600 meters to go, and I just assumed that Leonard Kamner had won the stage, and half an hour later, walking around, was, like, very, very pleased with that, my pick today. <laughs> then I did check the check the results and realised he came fourth, um, because despite being in the breakaway for the, the majority of the day and being in the race lead until the final 100 metres, there are two bike riders called Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Fingergaard who had other ideas up the final 24% incline Jonas Vingegaard launched an attack did kind he gapped Tadej Pogacar who then did did manage to get back on terms in the final few meters and win the stage to take two in a row and give himself another four seconds I think no more than that 10 
Oh, it's such a long day. He took 11 seconds, took 11, 11 more seconds in the GC. Anyway, okay, regardless. Across the line, Vinigo and, yes. and Roglic had 11 seconds over... Vinigo and Pogaccia had 11 seconds over Roglic, who was in third place on the stage. Yes. That's and, what we're trying to say. <laughs> and, the, and the main sticking point is is that now Nielsen Paulus, has, he dropped down out of the GC, and now it's looking... I mean, it's still a long way to go, but it's looking like a two-horse race in the Tour de France between Pogaccia and Vingegaard. After the stage, Pogaccia said that Vingegaard looks like one of the world's best climbers, perhaps the best. And it did look like that for a second. And if we remember Fonti last year, Vingegaard also showed Pogaccia what he is made of. Further down, you had Roglic third. He kind of held on, didn't really. Leonard Kamner held on, then did hold, hold on for fourth, ahead of Geraint Thomas, who was good again. David Godou, who sort of really delighted the French fans on top of the climb with his sixth place finish. Enric Mas, Roman Bardet and Adam Yates were the last sort of three guys in that group who sort of showed on the first real big mountain test that this is sort of the state of play going into the next two weeks when we hit the Alps and the Pyrenees. Was that a, was that a thorough coherent rundown? <laughs> Are we still here? Coherent may be an exaggeration, but uh, we'll take, I, think, we'll I, think, I think we are where definitely we are. Thorough. It was definitely thorough. That's good. We're, we're on, you know, we're we're at the end of stage seven. This is when this is when uh, your your Tour de France ground team here starts to fall apart. I will say that you know Mike and I just showed up on Monday. We can't really complain, but you two have been here since the very mm. very start in Copenhagen, and this is. This is when it starts to get a bit tiring. We I got, literally we got a little bit franced tonight. We also. did get a little bit franced, franced tonight as well. I also yeah. just tweeted on your tweet about tonight's restaurant debacle. I I quote tweeted it saying, 12 days in, the first cracks appear. I will now solely be focusing on stage victories." <laughs> I'm counting myself out of the overall rankings. I, w- I want to give the listeners an, an idea of how the restaurant debacle unfolded tonight. Uh, as we sat in a in a bar waiting, looking for Wi-Fi, we walked, what, the guts of half a kilometer away from the restaurant that was next door to the bar that mm-hmm. we were sitting in to check out three other restaurants that we decided not to eat in, <laughs> only to walk the full 500 meters back to the restaurant beside the bar that we were already sitting in, only to decide that we didn't want to eat there, <laughs> to walk back to the other three restaurants we'd already checked out, and finally settle on the one that was furthest away. It was good stuff. It was. We do this at least once a, a Tour de France, and then we are reminded that you should simply eat in the first place that is available, and that's what you should do at the Tour. I, I want to talk about the bike racing, though. Let's get back yeah. to the bike racing. You mentioned, Johnny, that, that you thought Leonard Kamna was going to win this stage when he came by you at, at not that long to go, what, less than a kilometer to go. At 1K to go, he had 48 seconds, I think, was what was up on the television. Obviously, I wasn't timing it myself at that point, but that's what was on the TV. All of that was wiped away in in the span of 900 meters or so by a, a just rampaging field behind and a team, a UAE team, that I think was, I don't know if it's stronger than we were expecting to see, but I think that Pogacar will, will come away from today's stage, obviously not only pleased that he took the stage win, which he's been f- focused on for quite some time. And, you know, his, his girlfriend was here. His parents were here. Uh, he had some special painted shoes for uh, a new cancer research foundation that he is kicking off. He had a whole lot of reasons that he wanted to win today, and he ended up doing that, and he was very excited about that. But... From a racing perspective, I think he'll be very, very pleased with the way that his team performed. Now, granted, today's stage was somewhat unique. It was not a true, 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 true mountain stage because there was really only one hill the whole day. And numerous riders said this, including Pogacar after the stage. It was basically like a 20-minute power test at the end of a, a relatively easy day. So not too surprising that he had a lot of, of teammates still around him. But still, Brandon, Brandon McNulty had a, a phenomenal ride. Uh, Rafa Micah, who is his last man, literally dropped him off after the Flamme Rouge. I mean, Pogacar could not have been any more pleased with the way that his team operated. And as we head into the mountains and away from the week where he was sort of most vulnerable from a team perspective, he's got to be pretty pleased with the way that today went. 
Yes, definitely. The Team UAE Emirates, they, they couldn't really do a much more solid job today. Throughout the stage, once the breakaway was established, the the question immediately was, you know, would this breakaway be given a gap where they could fight for the finish and, and the stage of victory? Or would Team UAE or one of the other teams want to take it up and, and control the race and bring it back for a GC battle on Super Planche? And, I've I've heard now we didn't get much coverage today just because of the area we're traveling through there was very little phone coverage and we couldn't really watch it on our phones. But from what I've heard, team Enios Grenadiers did a bit of the work. Maybe Johnny, you might have seen that uh, when you were in the on the motorbike, did you? Or? Yeah, and when it was sort of frantic and the brake was trying to establish itself and try and build their gap, it was Enios and UAE on the front, which we were remarking at the time because it affects how you can move through the whole race. Is that they didn't really let it go at any point. They kept it. They kept it tight. That took ages for the break to be established as well. And smaller, smaller group moves weren't allowed to go. Then eventually, it was a sort of ten-man move that did force itself free. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a gimme today by any standards. But then once that ten-man move did break clear, Team UAE Emirates very quickly got about setting a pace to control it, keep it within a reach, uh, controllable gap, so that it could come down for Pogaccia to take another stage of victory and. You know, the the team not only did they set up Pogaccia perfectly on the climb, but Mikael Berg and a couple of others kept it under control for the full stage. And I don't think that's something we could have seen from UAE Emirates last year or even, certainly not for Pogaccia's first stage victory or tour victory in 2020, but even last year it's debatable whether they could have performed like that, you know, on the first real test and whether they would have had the confidence to do that on the f- on the first actual GC stage, knowing that having done that, they're probably going to have to do that for the rest of the tour now, so long as Pogaccia is in yellow. So I think that's, you know, it's it's probably, although it maybe wasn't the most exciting stage or maybe wasn't the most... Uh, last K was pretty phenomenal. The last stage was pretty yeah. phenomenal, but in terms of the whole stage, it, was, it wasn't a, it's not a stage that'll go down in history. Um, and it, it certainly wasn't the most decisive stage. You know, it was a, it was a very narrow... It was, Pogaccia and Vinigo in the same time at the end. But I think in terms of how UAE will look at it tonight, they'll be thinking, well, you know, we've actually done a heck of a job today. We've a couple of riders who, Mikael Berg, not in fantastic form according to the team, and Mark Hirschi, who wasn't even supposed to be here. And they've they've done an exemplary job today of controlling the race and setting up Pogaccia once again and literally dropping him off at a point. You know, when, when Rafael Micah pulled off there, Although it was maybe 800 meters to the finish line, there's nothing much more a teammate can do for me for you from that point big, onwards. He <laughs> Give him a big wave, hand. like go on, <laughs> get on like with it now. Him through, on. Not an elbow, a, a full sort of wingspan ushering of Pagacha <laughs> to take it up I and win the stage. Johnny's I think I heard him this out right now for those who cannot see on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we're, no, we're not a visual product just yet, no. Pretty sure I heard Mike say, go on, off for you now, sir. Go on, get it done now. I <laughs> think it was in the accent <laughs> as something, well. Something, something to that effect. Um, but from that point on, it's just so steep on the gravel. There's nothing more a teammate can do for you. Mm. Um, and, and I think Micah had said after the stage that he made a mistake. He thought it was close to the finish, but really... You know, Pogaccia took it over from that point, and mm-hmm. it never looked like he was until Vinigo made his attack. Pogaccia looked good, and then ultimately Pogaccia came around and won the stage. I want to talk about Vinigo though, because mm-hmm. uh, well, he's the last best hope for Maybe. those who want a really tight Tour de France, which I think is basically all, basically all of us, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure that so Pogaccia's quotes right after the stage saying that Vingigo is one of the best climbers in the world, maybe the best. I'm not sure how much we can sort of well, truly yeah. trust that or read into that. I mean... Spin zone. A bit of spin Mind zone games. there. A bit of spin zone. I do think it points to Pogacar kind of having an awareness of, of the general sense of foreboding that most mm. of professional cycling has around him at this point in time and trying to tamp that down a little bit. And I mean, how often do we hear from from you know the, the favorite in a race who says no, no I'm, I'm i'm not the best right uh <laughs> or the guy who just won the mountaintop funny saying that, oh there's a better climber just right behind me yeah <laughs> just he's, he's right there there's a couple feet behind me uh but nonetheless i mean it, it, it seems very clear first and foremost that vingago is going to be a better option for yumba visma than than roglic mm. at well again at least based on today which uh, 
is not the best example of a mountain stage. We saw it like coming though. With yeah. the Dauphiné, the writing was on the wall, really, that Vingard, after finishing second last year, would sort of assume that, that role in Jumbo Visma, I think. I still think that the leadership at, at Jumbo is somewhat balanced between the two, but I think mm. that it's more 60-40 or even 70-30 in Vingago's favor versus Roglic at this point. Whereas, you know, even a couple of days ago, it was it was still really 50-50. It probably went to 60-40 on the cobble stage. Mm maybe 70 30 today and we've got a bunch more mountain stages coming up not tomorrow but coming up in the next week or so uh, as we head into the alps and i think that that by the end of the alps it's probably going to be really clear who who yumbo are riding for but i, I just wanted to talk about vingago specifically I, I mean do we feel like he's a legitimate contender do we feel like he could potentially take time on pogacar almost anywhere i mean he, he is still He's one of a very select group of riders who have ever, ever, ever dropped Pogacar. And he did it on Montfant 2 last year. In fact, we, we were trying to think at dinner tonight. We think he was the only, he's the only rider to have ever dropped Pogacar up a climb of serious, like, big mountain climb hmm. at the Tour de France. He Willingly, yeah. There, there have been guys who've, like, like Miguel Angel Lopez won that that the really tough gravel stage I think in the Pyrenees a few years ago but he just he was allowed to ride, ride away yeah, but, yeah in a, terms of in terms of a, a straight battle that's a different no. scenario we're talking just dropped yeah. like he's the only one who has dropped Pogacar and so does this mean that he can do that again this month do we think he is a legitimate option we've got to believe it otherwise we might as well go home mightn't we <laughs> <laughs> honestly um, but he showed last year I think it's good to believe in believe in him I think he's, he showed it today. He had, the, he had a little punch on him. I don't know. It's I'm just I'm just full of hope. And I, uh, if you read into it too much, you'll convince yourself otherwise. Star Wars was playing behind us just earlier. Yeah. Or was it Lord of the Rings? Either way, it's uh, oh. it's one of those sorts. <laughs> I think of, it was Lord of the Stars. Lord of the Stars. <laughs> at this point, yeah. Ronan, what do you think? I don't think so. Oh, Ronan. Sorry. So negative. To, to be so negative, but you're so anti think on this podcast. Pogacha <laughs> is such a complete rider at the moment uh, he has the experience of winning to uh, Tour de France he, he looks like he's in impeccable form uh, hasn't shown any chinks in his armour so far in this Tour de France and when I look at Jonas Finico as good as he has also been he you know he's undeniably second best to Bugaccia in, in every department that we can look at so far there, there's nowhere we can really say actually Vinigo is better than Bugaccia here you know, even in today's uphill finish, as good as Vinigo was, Bugatti still manages to find a way to come around him. And I still think, as good as Jumbo Visma's team is, the just all for one mentality that UAE has more than balances out, uh, more than balances out the advantage that Jumbo have from having Roglic and Vinigo. Uh, and I was surprised by, not surprised by Roglic today, but given that he is injured, he was, I think very very good on today's finish and that's the only thing that sort of gives me hope at the moment is if if Jumbo can play those numbers and Ineos can play their numbers also because they've still got Danny Martinez up there they've still got Adam Yates up there and they've still got Garen Thomas Garen Thomas was, hung on for a ridiculous amount of time today yeah, that's what good. I was going to say that the thing that really gave me confidence today going looking forward into the race that we might have a closer race was Pitcock's performance today because he shouldn't really have finished so highly on today's stage you know he's not a noted climber he's one of these sort of phenomenons who can seem to do everything but i think had he lost five minutes on a stage earlier in this tour he wouldn't have been going as deep today to finish as close as he can and keep a fourth sort of well a four-pronged fork and the and the anios uh, <laughs> that's just a fork <laughs> yes <laughs> Well, I think the most, the most forks are four prongs? Usually, I think. Okay. Mm. Well, you, get the, you get the little uh, cheese forks or melon forks or something. Well, a dessert fork, is that trident. a thing? Yeah. yeah. You get the movie star fork. Well, the, the, trident. the tridents don't work, so maybe it's adding another one in. Maybe that's the secret. Yeah. I, I, look, it was just whenever, you know, Pidcock ro rolled across the line, it was only 45 seconds after Pogaccia had won the stage. And given how tough a, a finale that was... You know, yes, he was in the white jersey. Yes, he is second in the young rider classification, and 
already looks like he could hang on to that second place in young ready for class, classification. But still, I just thought when he went, you know, he it, 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 it just had, you know, ridden in such a way that it seemed like he was trying to keep himself in contention where he is a threat if he goes on the move you know, in one of the upcoming Alpine or Pyrenees stages. And I think that's where Ineos well, might start playing the numbers. I say expand upon that because like the purpose of that is not to have him win the Tour de France. The purpose of that is to make moves with him in them dangerous, which makes UAE do, do, do a bunch of extra work, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's 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 not... It, I don't think anybody in any else would be sitting back thinking, well, we could get Tom into a position where he could win this Tour de France. But you Unless can... you give him 25 minutes accidentally. Or yeah, that. and, and that's, that's, that's the sort of checkmate scenario that UAE could find themselves in, whereas if Tom Pidcock can find himself, keep himself close enough on the GC where he slips into a breakaway, that breakaway then has to be controlled by Team UAE Emirates. If they give it 10, 15, 20 minutes, then you find an Oscar Pereiro situation where this guy gets the yellow jersey and they cannot get him off of him again. Who is now the official winner of the 2006 Tour de France? Yes, all because of a breakaway. That, all because of a breakaway. If I remember right, the the leading team on that day didn't want to chase, and the other teams didn't want to chase, and Pereiro's team certainly weren't going to chase because they had him in the break, and they ended up getting such a big gap that. Yeah, for a long time it looked like he was going to hold on. And Pidcock, or any of us will be hoping by putting Pidcock into a breakaway, they can force UAE to chase, you know, maybe not just on one day, but maybe on multiple days, day after day in the Alps, and, you know, build up a fatigue within UAE Emirates that whenever Yates or Martinez or Thomas make their move, or Vinigo <laughs> make their move, then you could have a, a, a different outcome to this race than we might see if it was just. Mano will mano. So I, I appreciate that you you started with pessimism there and you ended with optimism. Uh, however, I think that you actually just have worked yourself into a bit of a corner <laughs> there because uh, if we think back to the cobble stage, uh, Pogacar doesn't need a team, and so I'm not, I'm not sure that making his team tired is all that helpful. To be honest, he, he got through the cobble stage without a team, but getting through multiple mountainous days in a row is a slightly different story. I would suggest. I stopped. I'm not convinced. I think you're just gonna follow them around, and it'll be like, okay, Jumbo Visma is now my team, and I will follow you wherever I, wherever you go. It just seems <laughs> it seems like um, the numbers game is like the catch-all phrase for how to beat Pog, but then it doesn't ever really work like that. But we we all try and convince ourselves until we get to Paris, and it's like, damn it, we we'll have to come up with something next year. <laughs> well, because the reality is, the strongest rider in the bike race usually wins the yeah. bike race. I mean, I think that the, part of the reason why we always talk about that, why we talk about that a lot lately is that there's sort of this this misinterpretation of the sky years that the reason why they were winning those Tours de France is because of the team that they had. And I don't think that that's accurate. I think that the reason they were winning those Tours de France is because they had the strongest bike rider in the race and they controlled the crap out of it and they didn't let anything else happen. We saw at the Giro this year that you can have the exact same tactic, which is what they tried, and if you're the second strongest rider in the race, you're going to lose. And so I, I, I... Yeah, I don't think that... I don't think that that's really a valid way of evaluating the tour in a lot of ways. The, the, the team is important. The team is a it's a backstop against catastrophe, basically, right? Like flat at the wrong time, uh, running out of food. I mean, if, if you think back over the last 10 years, we've got instances where like, I think it was it was an Alpe d'Huez stage where Chris Froome ended up take, actually taking a time penalty because he had a, a late feed. Uh, was this 20... Uh, they all run together. 16, I think. Um, 17? Anyway. Like, was basically on the edge of a hunger knock and ended up taking a time penalty and so taking actually, food Richie from... Actually, Richie Port got the time penalty. Say, so Port got the time penalty, so it didn't even matter. That That's wow. the classic UCI. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Port gave him the food, right? And Port went back and got the food when he wasn't supposed to. And that's the kind of thing where a team can genuinely save an entire Tour de France. But those instances are not common but they do exist and it's one of those things where same thing on the cobble stage Pagacha was was isolated for a very long time a flat there would mean that he's two minutes back right now minute and a half uh and it only takes one of those so it is it is i don't, I don't want to be clear that a team is important it's just not what wins you these bike races but what's the alternative for you if you are any us or yumbo you know you're uh, mano mano you're you're it's proven time and time again 
this lad, Tadej Pogacar, cannot be beat. Especially well, on an uphill finish. I think they need to be going to Christian Prudhomme and Thierry Gouvenou and, and advocating for a series of 120 kilometer team time trial <laughs> stages that no, might but, work <laughs> unless Pog just rides on the front for the whole thing <laughs> no but seriously you know what, what is the alternative they have to try this numbers game and you know as you're saying there the, the, the team is the backstop against catastrophe for the leader well if they can isolate the leader and then he has a catastrophe that's when it can work out and it's Again, I, I don't think it's going to be a silver bullet where they, any of us can play a Tom Pitcock card on one day and all of a sudden it works out and one of their writers wins the Tour de France. This, you know, to, to beat Pogaccia and to beat this UAE team this year is going to be a series of, you know, days where they've, they, any of us have three or four writers up on GC and they get one away in a breakaway. And I think, you know, realistically speaking, it's going to have to be Martinez or Yates or who can go in a break and ice, leave Pogaccia isolated on a series of days in a row and then any of us have the sort of the the calmness and sort of the sort of laid back not laid back but the the patience the patience to wait for the right moment to really strike and, and that's that's probably the only way he can be beat at the moment I was going to say that they're going to have to wait till right at the end too because if you do it too early <laughs> he will just go next day exactly if you've got like two mountain stages left he'll be like alright I'm out I'm going to go take eight minutes back if you're going to go for the king you better not miss yeah <laughs> so basically we're, we're all it's all hinging on what the Holocom stage actually no it, 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 the, the days that it would work better is those uh, those set of Pyrenean stages like into foie uh, and I forget, forget Paragood. Paragood, yes, and the ones that are ahead of Hodakam and um, that are sort of like have more climbs in them, but without sort of the epic one at the end. Mm. That's actually probably the place where where one of those breaks would really work. Yeah, and the way I see that unfolding or possibly unfolding is we've you know we often see in the third week it's always the same riders day after day who can make it into the breakaway because there's such hard stages. Everybody's so tired. The cream naturally rises to the top. And if you then have um, a situation where Ineos can get maybe even two of those riders who are up in GC into a move like that, that you often see go away in the final week with you know, 10, 15, 20 riders in it, that then puts the pressure on UAE where, you know, theoretically speaking, either those two riders who get in the move can build up a gap and, and take a, a GC advantage, or it opens the door for Garen Thomas, who I think is the best bike racer within those Ineos Grenadiers GC leaders to really pull off a sort of daredevil move, winner, winner takes all sort of, you know, he, he has nothing to lose. He's been on the podium before and he's won before. So I was, I was going to say that I feel like Martinez is the one that is the most likely to, to pull a blinder in a breakaway. He just seems, he seems to fly under the radar a little bit and yeah, he feels, he feels the most likely of, of the, it, does it feel weird to be cheering Ineos on in this way? Uh, after, after a decade of hoping that they would, fall apart every every single Tour de France. It's the same thing, though. If um, Pogacar does lose this tour, I think there'll be a groundswell of, like, oh, people, love for him. He'll it's be the same more with popular. Yeah. He'll be more popular if he loses this tour narrowly. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, which is just funny to think about. And I know where you're coming from with Ineos, where Ineos and Sky before them have sort of put such a stranglehold in the race and so many races year after year that it just has made it pretty difficult to watch at times. But for me, this is like a... It's like a, a new class of Vinios riders. You know, you've got you've still got Gary Thomas there, who's been there throughout. But even, you know, you've got you've got a whole different roster alongside him of new young riders, exciting talent, taking a different approach into this race than we've seen even in the Giro recently. But then Gary Thomas himself, looking at him at the finish line today, at the top of Planche de to Belfi, I, th I think you know if we were asked if we were hard pushed to put our your thoughts down on paper before the start of the stage to pick one Ineos rider who might perform on today's stage probably would have went for Martinez or Yates even though I picked Garen Thomas for my fantasy thing today you know I, I still think he, he would have surprised a lot of people with that performance today and despite that when he got to the top he was very cool very calm collected was happy to stand and talk to the media for much longer than anybody else that did two or three pretty long interviews in a row before he moved away. And throughout, the, throughout it all, 
he was just you know he, he was very relaxed and he sort of said well you know he even joked about well Pogacar won the stage but at least he didn't drop us this time <laughs> you know, and something, something to that effect he's candid and, isn't he he's, yeah, he's good, he's good it was, have the thieves returned his butt yet uh, no his butt is still missing in action <laughs> maybe they put it in Adam Yates' ice bath Oh, because that was at the buses yeah he had a, like a blow up ice bath pool mm. yeah very British of him I feel <laughs> Just a blow-up pool in the middle of summer. Yeah, that's what we have. We're not we're not like the Americans isn't, where you have it like, more like plumbed into your garden. Inflatable <laughs> pool beds and stuff, like in the shape of palm leaves and things like that. That's I think if he as he moves up the GC, he'll get a more ornate uh, inflatable pool every he'll, day. He'll end up with a inflatable ring donut thing that you can just dive bomb at the swamp. I think so. Yeah, yeah, straight off the bike. Um, there's always the Bradley Wiggins option of how Ineos can win the tour again: buy Pagatra and send him to the Giro. <laughs> that is probably the best way to do it. That is probably the best way to do it. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited for what Ineos can do over the next couple of weeks. I'm and for, weirdly, I'm more excited for what they can do than for what Yumbo can do. We've we've just seen some yeah. weird cracks in organization and and well, just cracks in Yumbo Visma. It's it's a it's a it's a. We've always sort of thought of this team as very dialed and. There's been some weird non-dialed moments over the last week or so. Uh, even this morning, we were talking about this in the car earlier. Walt Van Aert hanging out in front of his team bus in the sun, in the heat, on his feet, talking with some commissars about uh, what uh, getting a warning for chucking a bottle or something. Just, just like things he didn't need to be involved in that he's that the team is getting hyped up about that that are distracting. Yumbo Visma, and it feels like that team is distracted to me at this point in time. They're just off. Something yeah. feels off. There's something the feels off, off over there. The way the way that things are going for them is off. It's just not. Things need to. Everything needs to align for you to win the tour. Yep. It just doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's happening. Whereas I was I was out snooping about the Yumbo bikes, trying to get some tech uh, content, and I spotted Wife and I come out of the bus. And walked straight across. And first of all, I assumed oh, I must have family or something there. But when I turned around, he was meeting with four UCI commissaires with Franz Masson, the team coach. So I went over and you know started listening, started taking a little video, sent that to Mikey. He got it up on Instagram for anybody who wants to see it. But basically, they stood for a good ten minutes, maybe more, maybe fifteen minutes in the sun, as you said, on his feet, basically just arguing with the commissaires about. They didn't even get a fine the day before. They got a warning because White had throwing a bead on to a team swanier at the side of the road, which is perfectly fine. You're allowed to throw your bead on to two team, team staff members. But within five minutes of doing that, a warning came over the race radio for Yombo Visma saying, your rider has just thrown a bottle to the side of the road. First warning or something to that effect. And they were basically just arguing about, well, why are we getting the warning when other teams are throwing bottles left, right and centre and there's nothing said about it? And it just struck me as a you know as a team who were already deeply sort of trapped in this thought of the whole race is out to get, get us everything's you know we've we seen last year opening couple of stages they had so many crashes and there was you know despair within the team of how that unfolded and this year the cobbled stage they had more bad luck and then this morning you see them and hear them having that argument with commissaires about something that they, they didn't even get fined for it was irrelevant yeah they're focused it was irrelevant. on the wrong things and then you yeah. know the, again in that conversation, it heard something about the, you know, the the stress of the moment. I think it was, I can't remember if it was White or Franz Masson was saying, you know, you don't understand what it's like for writers in the stress of the moment. You do things and you don't mean it, and this, that, and the other. And then they rolled to sign on, and they, they were only the sign on today was clearly marked out, but they were the only team that got lost in, <laughs> in the bus car park. You know, it was Jonas Finnegal came in first, and the, all they had to do was go straight, but for some reason they decided to go left, and it just. You know, and maybe I'm being harsh on them here, but it just seemed like, you know, you're arguably one of the best teams in this race. Get get your shit together. Do you, <laughs> like, do you think it's harsh to ask the question if they've mentally recovered from that Planche de Belfi time trial? Because since then, because before then, everything was going right. That's all. Well, before that, and you since had then, the everything's gone wrong. Giro scandal with Roglic, where the car, the team car had stopped for a call of nature when he needed a bike change. And we don't want to go into that rabbit hole. Was that just bad timing or bad luck or what? But... Again, it's, they just, for such a well-drilled, well-organized team who leave nothing to chance, just their sort of approach on the ground and their ability to cope under pressure is, you know, it, it just, at, at the moment, it's not coming across as the best. 
I'm hopeful about Enios in relation to that, partially because of Steve Cummings over there, who's a director over there now, and he's kind of of the mold that we're hoping for. And so I think that's another reason why Enios is more interesting to me. Beyond the, 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 the Yumbo issues we've been noticing, it's one of the reasons why Enios is particularly interesting to me at the moment. Uh, but we need to wrap up for the night. We've chatted through the stage as best we possibly can. I well, hope you enjoyed a little bit from Johnny on the motorbike today. hope you enjoyed our discussion of what might be in store for us at this Tour de France. We're going to be back tomorrow from Lausanne. It's a, it's a rolly stage. It's, I think it's got to be a breakaway, right? I mean, you've got, you've got Pogacar in yellow. They have no interest in the stage win. They have no real interest. I mean, they will defend the yellow jersey, obviously, but if it's the right composition, that breakaway is gone, right? And I can't see any team being hyper-motivated to bring it back. What's the finale look like? The finale is a 4.8-kilometer climb at, with an average of 4.6%, but that 4.6% does sort of... Uh, it is dragged down by the fact that there's a slight descent in the middle. Uh, we do have pitches up to 12% on this climb, so... Um, it's it's not an easy finish by any means. It's it's a third category claim. It's a Balka Bolma stage. You took the words out of my mouth, Kaylee. <laughs> Mocha Bolma. It's all for Bob Malcolm tomorrow. <laughs> In fact, we texted a certain friend of the podcast uh, who suggested that that should be our pick for tomorrow. So I think Balka is probably a pretty good bet. Or or we should say just riders like him. And there are some in this peloton. There are plenty in this peloton. In fact, there are quite a few teams in this race. And maybe at some point we'll dedicate a, a an episode to them. There's quite a few teams in this race with just no GC threat whatsoever. I feel like the, the number is actually higher than normal. Perhaps There's only one team with a GC threat. <laughs> yeah, perhaps, I was going to say, perhaps it's the Pogacar effect here. But there's a lot of teams that basically just have, ah, screw it. We're we're in for stages, mm-hmm. all in, right? I mean, Trek is and Trek is one of them. Trek has pretty much always brought at least somebody who is pretending to go for the GC, uh, if if only for the Heimars ability, a seventh invisible seventh award, which has normally been Bauka actually, uh, <laughs> but they are not this year, and they're they are among many teams who are just purely in for stage wins. And so, if those teams get in the break break tomorrow, that break is gone. Quickly, before we wrap up today, we do want to give you today's little history lesson. I believe this is the first one with cheese. Let's hear from Jose. You were worried, weren't you? We are seven stages into this Tour de France, and I haven't mentioned any cheese yet. This is completely out of character, I know. But today, we are in the Franche-Comté region on the border with Switzerland. And that is the home of one of the best cheeses of the country. I'm talking about the versatile Conti. Melt it, throw it in a salad, make a sandwich with it, or just eat it with some grapes and walnuts on a platter. The mountain range that is home to Conti is the Jura. Since 1958, this cheese has the AOP quality mark, indicating the brand is protected. And not every cheese that is similar in taste and look can call itself Conti. Before a cheese is AOP, it has to follow some rules. The milk from which the cheese is made must come from a specific breed of cows, the so-called Montbéliard. The milk from these cows must be processed within 24 hours without dyes and preservatives. And the cows must have enough space. In summer, they graze high up in the mountains and mainly eat herbs and various grasses. And you can taste this in the characteristic taste and aroma of Comte. French, nut, fresh, nutty, as well as spicy and fruity. Comte is produced in small cheese dairies in mountain chalet in the Jura. And these are the so-called fruitières. They're joint workshops whose, whose history dates back to the 13th century. The large round cheeses that can weigh 40 to 80 kilos have been produced in the same way for centuries. At least 500 litres of milk are needed per cheese and that required cooperation between the farmers because one farmer could never supply so much milk in one day. Comte is made from raw milk. This milk is heated to about 56 degrees and that is warmer than most raw milk cheeses where this is just 34 degrees Celsius. 
The temperature ensures that the cheese has a firmer structure. The cheese is removed from the mold after just a few hours and remains in the cheese factory for a week to dry. After this, it goes to the so-called maturation cellar for, for four to 24 months. And during this period, the cheeses are regularly salted and turned. After ripening, the appearance and taste are checked before the cheese is given the green Comté label. The aging process and the milk give the Comté its delicious, full, creamy and slightly spicy character. For me, the perfect Comté is a relatively young one, around six to nine months. You can buy it in every supermarket. If you don't buy the bottom shelf version, major supermarkets have Comté of relatively good quality. And Another splendid cheese from this region is the Morbier, with its characteristic layer of grey to black ashes in the middle. Morbier was created because the cows did not give enough milk for the Comté in the wintertime. Morbier then was made from the milk that the cows gave in the morning. This was pressed into the mould, but there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough for the whole mould. To prevent vermin, the cheese was then sprinkled with ashes and in the evening, the cows were milked again. Cheese was also made from this milk. And that cheese was played, placed on top of the ash layer and until the cheese molds were completely full. And contrary to what you might think, the ash layer does not add flavor to the cheese, at least not much. And finally, talking about cheese, today's stage starts in Dole, which is the birthplace of Louis Pasteur, inventor of, amongst others, pasteurization. He was born here in 1822. And pasteurization is the process, often used in cheese, that destroys harmful bacteria in the perishable foods by briefly heating the food. And it hardly, or the aim is actually, to not change the taste of the product. Before we wrap up, very important news <gasps> at the end of Stage seven oh, from right. Tom Bland to the Super Planche de Belfi. In the 109th Tour de France, we now have our first Mayo Sable. Ooh. Which. Does Johnny, Johnny, know what this Johnny is? doesn't know what this is. He's looking at us. We've just exposed him as a non podcasting listener. <laughs> if he had listened to any of our podcasts over the last several seasons, you would know what the Mayo Sable is. He is forgiven. So. He is forgiven. Mm. Well, we explain it now. The Mile Sabla is a jersey that we made up and award. Uh, and it is named after the sand in an hourglass. An hour, one hour glass. And so it is It is handed to the rider who is the closest to one hour behind the leader. Oh, nice. But not underneath it. So Not over it. No, not underneath it. That's oh, the rule. You have oh, to be over it. I thought you... We, we Guys. confused this last year too, but I actually went and checked this time. So an hour and one second is the perfect mile Sabla time. Okay. And it generally goes to a quite high profile rider because it turns out about an hour back by the by Paris mm. is like 18th usually. Nice. So George Bennett, two years ago, lost it on the Champs-Élysées, was literally was, was in line for it. He was devastated. I talked to him afterward. Uh, but he pulled a, a lead out at some point and dropped off the back of the peloton and lost like four minutes <laughs> and lost to Miles Sabla. Naira Quintana has won it previously. I think Bacamolin has won it previously. It's one of the most prestigious made-up jerseys in the entire Tour de France. We should get a prize for whoever gets it. Have we, we ever done that before? Uh, just a bag of sand. We'll just hand them a yes. bag of sand. A sandbag. Or some holy water from Lords. <laughs> oh, and replace it with sand. <laughs> Some holy sand. We'll get some some holy sand water from Lourdes and we will hand it to them on the champs and hopefully it's George again because he knows what we're talking about and the rest of them have no idea. We should let him know now. We should let him know now so that, he can that, keep that's an what eye. he's going for. Yeah. All right, I'll text him tonight. Mm. Yeah. He was he was he got into it last time. He was like doing diaries for us and was very excited and was trying to maintain it and then he didn't on the last day. Do, do last you think it, do you think it was the climbers lead out that cost him? Yeah, you know he had already lost that time <laughs> leading out on the front of the peloton as a climber. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, who's our Miles Sabla? Well, right now? Uh, that that slight change in the technical regulations that you presented there that I wasn't aware of that it's, it's the closest to one hour and over it rather than under it um, means that rather than being Victor Lefay who's at fifteen minutes and thirty five seconds, the bad news is that the Miles Sabla jersey goes to the same team as the yellow jersey. Oh no. 
and Vegard Stekelangen. <laughs> He's not going to know what the jersey means. He's not going to get it at all. <laughs> at one hour, three minutes and 23 seconds, is currently in the Mayo Sable jersey. But the good news there is that if he's already this far down, he has no chance. <laughs> Literally Unless he rides with Pogaccio for the rest chance. of the race. <laughs> Even then, he needs to get... Yeah. He has, so that is one jersey that we can say that at least one UAE rider is not going to win. And, and Mikael Björk, right behind him, at a hundred and... Not a hundred. An hour and three minutes and 43 seconds is equally out of the running. So there's two UAE riders out of a GC battle already Tom's is only like a what, minute and a half behind now what's it what is what is he behind now yeah, he was a minute and a half behind this morning what's he what is he now he uh, stood right he finished pretty high up today yeah. he dropped five places in the overall today uh, from 16th to 21st he's now at four minutes and 17 seconds Ooh. behind so he's riding well right now what the what the GC teams will do for this breakaway tomorrow is that the the directors will sit in the hotel tonight and they'll effectively draw a line, and you know any any rider beneath that line is fine to go in the breakaway. They don't need to worry about them. And already with the GC gaps the way they are, Nairo Quintana is at two minutes. Now, if it was any other rider, you might draw the line at two minutes, uh, especially you know such a long race and so many more mountainous stages to come but I think I think tomorrow uh, the directors for those teams will be drawing the line just beneath Rigoberto Uran in 16th place at the moment at 3 minutes and 9 seconds and basically anybody above that will not be allowed out of the peloton uh, with the possible exception of Nielsen Paulus and any below that are free to free to go on their go on their merry way and Good news for podcast listeners is that Tom Scoins is beneath that line. Might be given a bit of freedom. And yeah, who knows what happens when you get get yourself under breakaway in the Tour de France. We shall see. All right, we'll keep you updated on the Mile Sable because now we have one. We haven't had one until today. And we'll be back again tomorrow from Lausanne. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.